0: Our scripture reading this morning is found in Psalm 73. The text for the sermon is found in verse 24, which says, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. But this time we'll read the whole song. Remember what we have here in Psalm 73 are the lyrics for a song. I have some students who write songs, and it always comes as a little bit of a jolt to them that, of course, what we have in the Psalms are the lyrics for a song. So Asaph had some very uh, personal experiences, and then he writes a song which is quite autobiographical. Listen to what he wrote. This is a Psalm of Asaph. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works." I wonder if you or I was have, were having the same negative thoughts that Asaph did, that we would sort of air our dirty laundry. When I have sinful thoughts that are thoughts of envy or covetousness, I don't want other people to know about it. Asaph is quite striking here because He was green with envy when he looked at how the wicked were doing, how the wicked rich were doing, how the healthy wicked rich were doing. And it put him in a bad place. And then he writes this song about how he had been thinking like that. And then the way he talks about himself. He says, I was like an animal. I was like a beast. So he says, it's kind of beating on himself here. Quite something. And then he writes a song for the church to sing about this. But of course, we should be grateful, shouldn't we? That in the Psalms, we find psalmists who go through tough times or who have different experiences and by God's grace, of course, resolve the issue and then write lyrics about them so we can kind of follow their journey and learn from it. And that's why God has inspired ASaph to write down these lyrics. I bet all of us were in some way like ASaph this past week. We saw someone who was prospering, and we were envious. Maybe it's someone who has the same job as we have and we saw that they had a greater success than we did. Or we look at someone's family situation and we say, hey, you know, I'm dealing with these rough things in my family and look at them. everything's going great for them. Or maybe you're sick or weak, not feeling well, and you think of other people who always seem to be just Chipper, filled with energy, healthy, never having to go to the doctor. Well, Asaph envied the wicked. They seemed to be healthy and happy and rich and prospering in everything. And he looks at them and he thinks, what a waste it is for me to deny myself and to worship the Lord and try to walk in his commandments. How has it helped me? And then he goes to church. Now, the, the temple of God or the temple of Solomon had yet been built. So what happens is he goes to the tabernacle. David had erected a tent in Jerusalem. And now Asaph goes to church. And when he goes to church... As he comes into the presence of his holy God, he suddenly realizes the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the implications of that for the wicked who seem to prosper. And he perceives their end. And that changes everything. The concept of the end of the wicked is quite crucial in this whole song. It's in verse 17 when he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And then the other thing is that when he came to church, he suddenly realized, yes, you know, maybe he didn't have a lot of money and maybe his health wasn't so good and he was having all these trials in his life, but he perceived the genuine goodness of God towards him. And that's what we need to perceive this morning too. Yeah, maybe we don't have a lot of money in our checkbook. Maybe our job isn't going so well. Maybe we have tension and conflicts with people. And maybe we have all these trials in our life, but in the end, we come into the house of God and we realize, no, God has been so good to me. Overflowing in mercy and grace and goodness. And that's what happened with Asaph. That's why he could begin the song by saying, truly God is good to Israel. And that's where we need to end up too. We're gonna look at this text under the theme, God guiding us by his counsel. We'll look at the meaning of that, and then the necessity of it, and then finally, the goal that God has in guiding us throughout our life by his counsel. In verse 24, Asaph pinned these lyrics. He says, you will guide me with your counsel. There he introduces God as our guide. He says to God, you, you will guide me. Now it's very easy for us to jump over that little word you, but notice he's using the second person singular to refer to the Lord God Almighty, who is our guide Yes, it's true, the Lord does give to the church some undershepherds, and the undershepherds do play a role in guiding the flock, leading them to green pastures. But here the guide is Elohim. Truly, Elohim is good to Israel. And that name is a name that points to the fact that God is the almighty God. He is the omnipotent creator. I love how in this song, too, David does talk about at one point how God gives him strength. Yes, God can give us strength because he is the source of all might and he is the source of all power. He also refers to in the song to God as the one who is the Lord God. He is the one who is the most high. He He is Adonai. He is our Lord and our master. That is the one who is our guide. And the fact that we have this language of guiding implies that you and I are pilgrims. We're pilgrims who are on a journey and we need a guide. If you've read Tolkien's book about the hobbits and the Lord of the Rings, there are in the story people who guide these little hobbits, these small, unwarlike, like unwise little creatures for example, there's Gandalf or there's Aragorn. They have guides who lead them, help to avoid various dangers. Well, God is our guide. Notice how the psalmist makes this very personal. He says, you, God, you will guide me. Notice that this morning. We need to make this personal too. It's not just that God guides the flock you know, this is another picture where sheep rather than pilgrims. It's not that God just guides the flock. That No, he guides every one of you, his individual sheep, and every one of his lambs. He guides each one of us. We need to personalize this and say, God, you guide me. Now, God did this in the Old Testament. He guided his people. In astonishing ways, that's why during the wilderness wanderings, God guided them through that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud by day. God would cause that pillar to ascend, and that meant it was time for them to march on, and God would lead them and guide them. Sometimes God also led his covenant people into serious trials, like right off the bat when God led them into that dead end by the Red Sea. God guided them into a massive trial. And here comes Pharaoh and all of his army, and they think this is a disaster, but God is testing them. Will the God has just, will they trust in the God who has just poured out 10 plagues upon the Egyptians? Will they trust God or not? And then God would guide them. If, God, if that pillar of, of cloud ascended, then it was time to travel, and they'd go on in their journeying for the day until God decided He had guided them where He wanted them to go. So we are pilgrims. In the olden days, they would say, you know, California or bust, or Oregon or bust. We are paradise or bust. We are pilgrims on our way to the heavenly kingdom. And God is guiding us, He's leading us. Just like my kids recently, we got some La Mancha goats. And what did I see my kids doing? Well, they would take the goats and take them out of the place where they had gotten comfortable, and lead them and take them into some new pastures where they were led and shown that there were new plants that they could eat. And so the the kids would lead and guide the goats to a new pasture. God guides us. He leads us. He directs us. He shows us the way to go. Go there, not there. He shows leadership. And God guides us on a path that Jesus says is narrow and hard to climb. It's a path that leads to some very difficult ravines. Just like John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress has Christian go through all of these different trials. He falls in the slough of despond and needs to be rescued out of there. He runs across all these difficulties, dangers. They're the dangers of False guides. And then the Bible tells us how the devils, these fallen angels, are such a threat to us. They are like, um, like, well, Satan himself is pictured like a lion that is waiting for us to pounce upon us. But God guides us and protects us from ambushes. Well, we find the same picture elsewhere in the Psalms. So, for example, if you turn to Psalm 27, verse 11, there the psalmist sings, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Notice that talk about needing God to lead them, to guide them on a level path, a safe path to walk upon. In Psalm 5, verse 8, we have similar lyrics Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. So notice the psalmist realized they need God to lead them through life's journey. Life's journey has so many many different paths and and directions and dangers. No. We need God to guide us and to lead us. And the psalmist says here, you will guide me with your counsel. Now, if you look at some other translations, you will see that they simply say, you guide me with your counsel. So it's not in the future tense. The reason for that is that the Hebrew imperfect tense that is used here can refer to something that is ongoing. And if that is the correct translation, then the idea is that God will continue to guide us during our entire pilgrimage. Sometimes it has the future sense, and that's what the New King James shows here. Then the idea is that in the future, our God will guide us. So, you know, the future is not dark, the future is not scary, because our Father, God, is guiding us on the way that he wants us to go. Now, how does he guide us? The psalmist says, you will guide me with Your counsel. Now here we have something tremendously encouraging. How does God guide us? God guides us with his counsel. Well, what is his counsel? Well, there have been two explanations of this. One explanation is that this refers to God's precepts. That is, God's commandments. We read the Ten Commandments this morning. And behind the Ten Commandments is the infinite wisdom of God, of course. And we know that in the way of walking in God's commandments is the way of blessedness. Yes, sometimes it's also the way of suffering and the way of people trying to attack you. But it's also, in the end, the way of wisdom and the way of blessedness. So God's word does give us first principles. You know, in line with that, we sang a psalm that talked about how God's word is like a lamp that directs us and, and shows us where to go. It illuminates the way that is the way of blessedness, the way of love. Now we do have in Psalm 119 a a reference to how God's testimonies are like counselors. If you turn to Psalm 119 and verse 24, we have a place where God's testimonies are said to be like counselors. Now the reason why I was I was looking in Psalm 119 and saw this is that I was trying to figure out, well, does the word counsel here refer to God's precepts or does it refer to his plan? And I thought, well, if it refers to God's precepts, we might find the word used in Psalm 119, which is, you know, the psalm where every single stanza refers to the word of God with a synonym. But I couldn't find the word counsel actually used in the whole song. Now in verse 24, it does say, your testimonies are also my delight, and my counselors. So there the idea is that God's law is like someone who gives wise advice to us about how to live. But I think here when God talks about the counsel by which he guides us, he's referring to his plan. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 33. And in Psalm 33, we have a beautiful psalm. This is the beautiful psalm that talks about how God is the creator. It talks about how the Trinity plays a role in creation. It teaches fiat creation in verse 9. God spoke and it was done. But our attention goes to verses 10 and 11, where we have the same Hebrew word, which is asah, that is used here. And notice how, in this context, it refers to God's plan. We read, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Notice the counsel of God here refers to his marvelous plan. Notice how the wicked and the nations can have their plans. Like Vladimir Putin had this plan that within a week he was going to conquer Ukraine. It came to nothing. Hamas thought, apparently, that they could just attack Jewish civilians and maybe the whole Arab world would rally to their cause and they were going to be victorious. But notice, God has a plan. And because God has a plan, the plans of the peoples come to nothing, And then verse 11 is so beautiful. And this is something as Reformed believers that we celebrate. That the counsel of the Lord stands forever. What God has planned will always come about. You know, we can make plans about things and then afterwards we decide, oh, we made a mistake. We can start to build a house and have some plans and say, well, actually, that's not going to work out. And so we revise the plans. But our God, you see, he is the infinitely wise God. And his plan for our life is the expression of that infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom. And that's why we're told the plans of his heart stand to all generations. So the psalmist is celebrating in the psalm that God guides us according to his eternal plan. Did you know that God planned the day of your birth, the day you were conceived in your mother's womb? He planned the day of your death, the Bible tells us. He has that planned out already. He he had planned out what kind of jobs you would have, what kind of gifts he would give to you. He planned who you would marry. Sometimes we need to discern what God's will is. Sometimes, you know, there are certain plans we have and we want to do something And that the Lord slams the door closed. But then what do we often find? Looking back, we see, well, he closed that door because he wanted to open another door. And so we need to discern what is the will of the Lord. So you see, God guides us by his all-wise counsel. This is the counsel of your loving Father. This is the counsel of the great and good Shepherd. He has planned out your life in every detail. Yes, this means the trials too. But remember, that's why Joseph can say, you, my brothers, you meant it for evil, but God planned it. His counsel was for good. And so we can discern God's will often afterwards. But he makes his good will known to us. Oh, at the heart of of this good counsel of God for our life is the decree of predestination. You know, the great counsel of God includes his entire plan of providence. The fact that he would give to us every breath we're having today. You know, how much money we made at work this past week. If we're going to go deer hunting, what deer we will shoot. All of that is part of his comprehensive plan. But that whole plan, see, at the heart of that great plan is God's great decree of election and reprobation. And in that great decree of election when he chose us in Jesus Christ, therefore, guess what? The whole plan, the whole plan for our life circles around that. That's why we can say with Paul, we know, there's something we know. We know that God works all things, all things, every little detail of our life for the good of those who loved him, for those who were called according to his purpose. And at the heart of that great plan is God's counsel about Jesus Christ. That we would be united legally to Jesus Christ. And before the foundation of the world, God had planned that Christ would, as it were, take the bullet for us, suffer the great wrath of God. That's why the Apostle Peter could preach on Pentecost Sunday. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. That's the language of God's counsel. And for of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And the early church also celebrated the crucifixion of Christ as part of God's plan. After Paul Peter and John had been arrested and then freed, the early Christians said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then they said this, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. you know we can we can rest in god's guidance and providential leadership of our lives because he is this god the trinity who has loved us so greatly and sacrificed his beloved son for us how much more will he not with christ as a gift give to us all things we need for life and health what a beautiful touch there is in our song in Psalm verse 37, in the verse right prior to our text, in verse 23. Did you see the beautiful, beautiful statement that is made there? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. Well, those of you who have little kids, you know this this language, don't you? We have mothers here with little kids, little toddlers. What do you do When you're going to cross the street, you come to a busy road, and you have your toddler with you. What do you do, moms? You grab your kid by their hand, don't you? You grab them by their hand, and you direct them. You guide them safely across the street. This is the beautiful picture, saints. God has you by your right hand. Yeah, the right hand which is symbolic of the hand you used to do most of the important stuff in your life. You work with your right hand if you're right-handed. Of course, if you're left-handed and you can write more neatly than the rest of us, then the picture would be of God taking you by your left hand. But he's taking you, he's leading you, he's guiding you, he's protecting you, carrying out his great plan for your life. So God is guiding us. He's guiding us by his counsel. That's what the psalmist comes to see. But see, he had not been perceiving that clearly. And, and that's why he had struggled. Why is it necessary for us to be guided by God's counsel and to be aware of that? Well, because otherwise we place our trust in our own plans or we have the fear of men because we think that the plans that wicked men have are somehow going to influence our destiny what happened is that Asaph had taken his eyes off God he hadn't been perceiving God's sovereignty over all of his life the fact that God had him by his right hand And he was beginning to perceive that somehow it seemed like wicked men were maybe controlling their own destiny or whatever was going on. He has this very narrow tunnel vision. He just sees wicked people and he sees everything is going great for them. He tells us in verse 22, I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Maybe if you or I would say, I was, I was an idiot. I was so stupid. I can't believe I was acting and thinking like that. Part of the problem was that Asaph was getting caught up with the things of this world. He was getting caught up with health and wealth and success. And he was beginning to perceive that those are the things that truly make you happy. In fact, you don't even need to go to church to realize some of this. All you got to read is the new biography of Elon Musk. Elon Musk has wealth, and yet is he a truly happy and content man? No. He has a lot of power. I mean, he's the kind of guy who can say, okay, I'll let the Ukrainians use my Starlink internet system. But does that give him true fulfillment. His whole, his whole family life is a mess. Asaph had been envious. Envious of the wicked. And because of that, he became bitter. You know, you look around and you see others. You compare yourself to others and you say, well, look how, look how they're doing in comparison with us and he become envious. And Asaph was bitter about it. He was bitter about how the wicked seemed to be doing so good. In verse 3 he says, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There it was. He saw how rich they were. And I grew up in a family where my parents didn't have a lot of money. Whatever extra money my parents had, that went to support Christian school tuition. Other people who didn't fear God, they had amazing bass boats. Unbelievable. So my dad could have been envious. In verse 5, he says, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Verse 7, their eyes bulge with abundance. We have a lot of wicked rich people around us. Some of those wicked rich people, too, they, they want to live long, so they try to you know, use their money to spend it on whatever it could be that would make them healthy and extend their lives. Verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And then in verses 13 and 14, this psalmist Asaph, he says, But as for me, it's it's, it's different. He says, he says, I have surely have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. So what he's saying is, here, I've been trying to serve God. I've been trying to serve the Lord. I go to church. I'm, you know, trying to do what's right. And I have trouble upon trouble. I have a hard time paying my bills. I look in my checkbook and there's hardly enough money. And I've been sick. I've had medical expenses. On top of that, I've had problems and fighting in my family. And I have conflicts here, conflicts there. Trouble, trouble, trouble. He says, it's all a waste. He says, I'm just, I'm just, it's just a waste. It's not worth it. Trying to serve God, you don't get anything out of it. Why should we strive after a sanctified life if that's all what we get in return? All the day long, he says, "I've been stricken and rebuked every morning." Wow, he has having a rough time, isn't he? Now, of course, the problem is that as Christians, we need to live by faith, don't we? And Asa's he faith here wavers. Instead, we need to lift up our eyes and see that. No, God is good, and he's carried out his all-wise counsel in our lives. And one reason he sends trials is because he is refining and purifying our faith. And what happens when we try to follow our own plans, when we begin to perceive what God's will is, but we do not like it, and we fight against it, well, then we're like the psalmist who says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He was kind of like Peter, you know, who got out of, the sh- out of the boat and was walking on water and then he takes his eyes off of Christ who is his strength and he looks at the waves and the storm and he sinks under. Well, and then he goes to church though and then he perceives the necessity of being guided by a good God who is your heavenly father and he perceives that no, when you are a wicked person walking unrepentantly in sin, yeah, you might, you might be rich and you might be healthy for a little while and you might have a lot of power like Vladimir Putin for a while, but then comes the end. And that word end is a striking word. In verse 17, he sings, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Those who are not guided by God's wise and fatherly counsel are instead led by a God who is sovereign in his reign of power over their lives. But God then is a judge who will punish them. And it took going to church for Asaph to that, For him to put everything in perspective. To realize that the things of this life, they, okay, moss get at those clothes and rust gets at those cars. And he realized the end of the wicked and what a dreadful end the wicked have. Look at the dreadful end they have. In verse 18, he says, Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Notice what God does. There's a man, you know, who makes an idol out of his work. So you know what the Lord does? He causes the man's job or work to prosper. And in that way, the man even makes more of an idol out of his work. And in that way, God brings the man down to judgment for making an idol out of his work. Others make an idol out of money or success and power. So God gives them a little more of that. And in that way, he sets them in slippery places. And so there they slip and slide right on down to hell. You cast them down to destruction. You know, we can hardly fathom what that word destruction means. It means punishment in hell, first in one's soul, and then punishment in the lake of fire, in one's body and soul. Verse 19, he talks about their end again. He sings, oh, how they are brought to desolation, as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. So yeah, for a while the wicked might act like everything is going fine, but then they face the wrath of an angry God and are overwhelmed with fear. And that judgment comes just like that in a moment. Also in verse 20, he talks about their end. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Some translations talk about how God their views... The wicked as phantasms. The word image is, is translated as a phantasm. What's a phantasm? Well, it's like something that's there and then it's gone. That's what the wicked are like. And then there's one more verse in verse 27. He sings once again about the end of the wicked. He says, For indeed those who are far from you shall perish. And once again, that's perishing under the terrible judgment of God. And then he says, you have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. So what a terrible thing to read about the end of the wicked. So Asaph goes to church and he begins to perceive that God is a righteous and a holy God and the end of the wicked rich will be horrific. Horrific. So he stops coveting them and their situation in life. We need God. It's necessary for God to guide us because he alone can guide us through the dangers of life. The psalmist sings in Psalm 31, verse 3, for you are my rock and, your, and my fortress and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Notice how God does this in the end for his name the glory of his name but he leads and he guides us along the way he protects us his pilgrims we need his leadership we need his guidance we need his sovereign plan to be carried out and what is his goal what's God's great goal in guiding us according to his counsel well it is found in the last part of the text Here we have a temporal progression. The first part is talking about our life in this world. You will guide me with your counsel. And then the last part is the goal. And afterward, receive me to glory. We could even translate the word and here with then to show there's a chronological succession here. You will guide me with your counsel. Then afterward, that is after you call me home, you will receive me to glory. I'm reminded how David says in Psalm 61, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And there that rock refers to the Holy Trinity, the one true and glorious God. And yet remember too, the idea of the rock in the Old Testament sometimes does point to Christ. That rock, remember, that followed the Israelites, the source of that water. Well, that rock was Christ, we're told, in the New Testament. God Leads us to Jesus. He has led us to Jesus so that we have believed that Jesus is our Savior. He has led us to Christ so that we have relied upon Christ and we have said, Christ is the way. He is the one who leads us back to God again. We trust in the crucified Savior and we trust in a crucified Savior who has not only paid for our sins but he has merited for us glory. He has earned for us heaven. He has earned a house of many mansions. The psalmist, he, uh, he, in his, his celebration here, I think it reaches its heights when he says, and afterwards you receive me to glory. He receives us to glory. Notice that language of receiving. When President Biden has a reception in the White House, what happens? Well, people come and dignitaries come or people come to the White House and there's President Biden and he's welcoming people and he receives them into the White House. He welcomes them. Now that is the beautiful picture here. During your whole life long, your Heavenly Father is leading and guiding you through all the challenges and troubles and trials and joys of life. And then afterwards, he will receive you into glory. I think of how Jesus received the thief on the cross, the elect thief. Remember, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The Roman soldiers came, broke that guy's legs. He died, but Jesus had died earlier. And so Jesus was there to receive and welcome him into glory. And that's what Jesus will do with us too. The Father will welcome us, celebrate our arrival, celebrate our homecoming when he calls us home. He'll open the gates of the celestial city That heavenly city, he will bring us to the trials of crossing the Jordan, but he will welcome us with an active reception. He will welcome us pilgrims, and he'll take away our staff. We won't need our pilgrim staff anymore. He'll give us a crown of glory. He'll welcome you. He will clothe you with white. He'll give you a palm branch. It's true that when we arrive in heaven, angels will welcome us, Our loved ones who have died in Christ will be there to celebrate our arrival, but the Lord God Almighty Himself will receive us and welcome us into heaven. He'll welcome us to glory. I was surprised that in the commentaries there are actually two different ways that people have understood the word glory and afterward receive me to glory. If you notice in the songs that we sang in our Souther hymnal, people have taken this to be an accusative of the goal. That is, glory here pretty much stands for the goal, which is arriving in the place that is filled with the glory of God. And therefore, the word glory becomes really a synonym for heaven. That's why when we talk about our loved ones who've died, we'll say sometimes they have gone to glory, referring to heaven. But also, I notice some people take it to be the accusative of manner. So for example, Luther did that, and he said, well, what this is, it's the accusative of manner. And so it talks about the way in which God will receive us, and so Luther, in his German Bible, translated this, and afterward, receive us with honor. Now that is certainly the case, that is true. In this life, Sometimes we feel like no one even respects us. But guess what? When we arrive and are received by God the Father, you and I will be honored and publicly recognized in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom now. We will receive the reward of grace. So we will be honored publicly in paradise. That is true. That's how Luther said you ought to translate this. But most of the translations like our King James and New King James take this to refer to the accusative of the goal and say this refers instead to the fact that heaven is a place where there is this display of the invisible, glorious attributes of God as light. There is this shining forth in some way that's visible of the invisible astral. Astonishing attributes of the invisible God. And perhaps that is what is meant here. So heaven is a place of glory. That's why there will be no need for the sun or the moon or the stars there. Because the glory of God, his love and his mercy will illuminate paradise. So notice what the text is saying. God is going to guide you your whole pilgrimage and then afterwards he's going to bring you into a land that is where the glory and the love of God is displayed. That's why Jonathan Edwards said that heaven is that land of love. You know, in this life we we only have a small foretaste of what heaven will be like. You know, we can gather the saints and there's this genuine, real Christian love among the saints. But the moment we are brought And welcomed into paradise. We will be welcomed into a place. Where we will experience. Real. Pure. Genuine. Love. From all the angels. From all the saints. From the Father. Son and the Holy Spirit. We're going to be stunned. By being loved like that. And then on top of that. We will be perfectly holy. So we will love back perfectly. And we will love God for the first time perfectly. That's where we will be received. And you know what makes heaven heaven? I love how the psalmist makes the point that the great thing about heaven is not just that it's a land of love, not just that we're going to see our grandpas and grandmas and dads and moms who have beat us there. We're going to be able to meet Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's amazing. We're going to be able to meet Asaph. That's amazing. We're going to see these glorious angels who have protected us all of our life long. We're going to see these loving, holy angels. But notice Asaph says, the great thing about heaven is the presence of the Holy Trinity. That's what he says in the next verse, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Notice what he's saying there. And this is a little little embarrassing to us, isn't it? Because we get way too caught up with creatures and with the saints. And we don't always have the same attitude that there's only one we desire above all. You know, we love our wives. We love our kids. But notice how there is one we need to love even more than our wives and our kids There is one we need to desire above all, and that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one true and glorious God who has loved us, the Father who has sacrificed his Son for you, the Son who has died for you, the Spirit who indwells you. So Asaph uses very strong language, and what he says is this. If the Holy Trinity is not in heaven, he doesn't even want to be there. Heaven is heaven because that's where God dwells and where God is with the saints. Well, on this day of rest, we need to work at and fight to desire God and delight in him like Asaph. And as we do that, we'll have just a little foretaste of what it's going to be like when you are received with honor into glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us not to be caught up with the things of this world, not even to make an idol out of health. We pray for saints who right now are on their deathbeds and who are close to reaching the end of their journey. Comfort them and bring them home to the tremendous joys of paradise and glory. So may we not be charmed by the treasures of the earth, but instead realize that you, O God, are the one who above all is to be delighted in and celebrated and treasured both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.